0: slowly, focusing more on God and our relationship with God than what you might call the mechanics of prayer. And we did this, and it's one of these foot stompers, we did this because our view of God greatly affects both the content and the shape of our prayers. That was an understatement. Our view of God greatly, radically affects both the content, what we pray and how we pray. To God. Now, our culture today tells us that spiritual is optional. If we choose to add spiritual to our lives, our culture would have us divide our lives, with a small part being spiritual, and the remainder called normal life. In this division, the normal life part almost always is more important than the spiritual, and the two parts, we are told, should have little or nothing to do with each other. So that is why we are told that religion should not be a part of the public square. Now, in contrast to this, we see in the Bible very clearly that God made us spiritual beings. And because of this, all of life is spiritual for all people, even if they, we, do not think so. That's why in this series, we are looking to apply prayer to four aspects of life. These are just four. There are many, many others we could look at, but we picked these four to look at. Now, if you wonder, has this idea of sacred and secular come into the church? And the ax- answer is yes, it did, not just currently, not recently, long time ago. And how do you know that? Because if you notice, in the prayer, and I grew up in the church, our prayers are often only limited to certain topics, rather than praying about all of life. And so, yes, we have been affected by this. So today, I want us to to make an application of prayer to the idea of success. Now, your first response might be, but Mark, what does success have to do with being spiritual? It has a lot to do with being spiritual. I just said that all of life is spiritual. Part of life is success and seeking of it, but also I believe that we were wired by God to want success, not just in games and sports, but also at work with our family and in many other parts of our lives. And that's a good thing, though, being human beings, we can take anything that God made good and we can mess it up, and we do that with success as well. Now often, when we think about success, we, we measure success with numbers. We think of how many wins and losses does our sports team have? At work, how successful is the company? How much money does it make? How much do we make as a salary? Personally, and we don't always do this consciously, comparing, but how much does their house cost? How much does my house cost? Or a new thing with technology, how many streaming devices do you have in your house? Okay, it's a growing number by the way. Now, included with this idea of success is the thought of group or individual glory. If you're a sports fan, then you celebrate your sports team when they win the Super Bowl or the World Series. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Stanley Cup. You can add the World Cup. I don't know anybody that's, well, I don't know of anybody that celebrates curling. Okay. There are a few other sports out there. Whatever the sport is, you celebrate it when your team wins, even though you and I usually have little to nothing to do with their success, but they're your team, and so you celebrate. Or your company gets listed in the business world as one of the most successful of its kind. You're a member of that company, and so you've helped accomplish this. And so you can boast, but hopefully you do it in a good way because none of us like arrogant boasting. And then we all want to enjoy recognition of any special personal achievements that we make. We are wired to to talk, to think about success in many different ways. But since all of life is spiritual, what does spiritual success look like? And be assured, spiritual success is related to everyday life. Well, to answer that, let's begin by reading our verses for today from the screen. We Go ahead and put up the first one there. We're going to be reading Ephesians 4:11 to 24. So let's read this together. Remain seated. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You notice Paul likes long sentences. Well, let's break this down. In verses 12 and 13, we see their positive descriptors of spiritual success. Paul begins by saying that pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if pastors and elders and teachers are doing their job, Christians in the local church are being equipped to live the Christian life in all areas of life. And so then he talks about Work of ministry. Well, this is something for everybody in the church. All Christians are called to love God, to love others, to be witnesses of God's love, to believe in Jesus, and to obey God. And it's out of this, then, that the ministry comes, and that word ministry means to serve. So it's out of out of all that God gives us and does for us that we are to serve God and to serve others. Then the next descriptor, building up of the body of Christ. Again, this is something that we all do. The the Bible uses the term body of Christ to refer to the church, both the universal church that is all around the world and the local church family. This building up includes both growing in number and growing in spiritual maturity. Just like physically you want to grow up, You want to be strong, but you also want to be able to think and to use your body well. The next descriptor, he talks about unity of the faith, that we all come to agree on the gospel, the essentials of the faith. Or as I've talked with people before, we want to major on the essentials and we want to minor on the differences. Some churches I've heard of, been in, majored on the differences. This is why we're different, and this is why we're better than they are. If you stop and think about it, every one of us bring all kinds of ideas into our relationship with God, whether you grew up in the church or grew up unchurched. Here, we've had people from all different kinds of backgrounds, unchurched, Presbyterian, have actually been kind of the minority. We've had Baptists and Catholics and Episcopals and Lutherans and Methodists, all flavors of people coming. And part of what we're to be doing is to be working to agree on the gospel, on what the essentials are. Then he talks about the knowledge of the Son of God. And this includes both Bible knowledge and personal experience, that is, daily living with Jesus. And so our church offers Sunday morning worship and Sunday school and Bible studies, But not just so that you can gain Bible facts, but also so you can see how God's Word applies to everyday life, to living with God every day. Then he talks about mature manhood, which refers to spiritual maturity for all Christians. And then he talks about attaining the fullness of Christ. God is working to make Christians more and more like Jesus in their thinking, in their values and in their behavior. So that's some positive descriptors he gives in verses 12 and 13. Then in verse 14, he gives us some negative descriptors that are a contrast. And you'll notice they're all related to maturity. He begins by saying that you'd no longer be children. Do you catch those words, no longer? Just as we all start physically as babies, Christians all start spiritually. Immature, regardless of what age it is when you become a Christian. But just as we don't stay babies physically, we shouldn't stay spiritually immature either. And so when he says, no longer children, don't stay children, he's using this picture of children and adults to make the contrast between immature and mature. And then he says, Not, no longer tossed to and fro being pushed around and just flipping from one thing to another okay, as compared to being firmly grounded, knowing God's truth. And then the next one is connected to that. He says, not carried about by every doctrine and human cunning and deceitful schemes. So he's talking about discerning God's truth. Now, if you stop and think about it, you will realize this. We are constantly surrounded by messages by ideas in the songs that we listen to, in the movies, in the TV, on the internet, radio. I mean, it's all around us. And some of the ideas that we hear is very easy to tell they're radically different from God's word and God's ways. But some other ways are a little bit more subtle. And it's only as you stop and think and see, where does this take me, that you realize that it's actually taking you away from God's ways. And so the idea, part of maturity, is discerning and beginning to be so familiar with God and his ways and what he loves that we can see and identify these other things and say, take what's good and then reject the rest. Then in verses 15 and 16, he adds to the description. He says that, talks about speaking the truth in love. And again, this is not talking just about church. Or Bible study. This is in all of our relationships. And it's very important to keep the two together because one without the other ends up distorted. Let me show you what I mean. If a person focuses just on truth and just discards the love part, then you might be speaking the truth, but it can, you can also be condemning or harsh. If a person focuses just on the love and lets the truth part drop, then the result can be compromising God's ways. And something like this has happened with compassion in our culture. I was just listening to a, a talk this week and the speaker was giving a history and in part he was saying why it is, for example, that our culture values compassion. It doesn't always use the word, but it values compassion. And he shows how from years, decades before the culture in general valued religion and Christianity and Jesus, but then Jesus' divinity got dropped off by many people. Then Jesus got dropped off altogether, but they kept his, his virtues, his attributes, and one of the most important was compassion. But even today, things done in the name of compassion end up hurting other people. If you don't keep truth and love together, you end up with a distortion he talks about growing up into Christ. And this is a lifelong process. I think everybody who's been in school, with very few exceptions, looked forward to the day when you no longer be in school. And you say, I'm going to be graduate. I'm done with that. But you're not done learning. You're not done growing. There's still a whole lot more to learn. The good part is, you don't get tested, on, get graded on it, okay? But you still can learn a lot. Well, growing up into Christ, growing in the Christian faith and maturing is a lifelong process. And then he talks about each part working properly. All of us doing our share as part of a larger body. Or to think of it in today's terms, we should not just be Christian consumers, only taking how are you and I contributing to and helping the work of the church? And then finally, he says, building itself up in love. If we're all doing our part, finding from God what that part is and and trusting him, working with him, then we're going to work together and the church will build itself up in love. We're going to grow in our love for God and our love for others. Now, you and I cannot do these things on our own. In fact, we don't though we are to strive to do our best, to work as hard as we can in this, in each of these pieces. But there's a common danger that comes with this and with seeking success in sports and work. And that danger is self-reliance and self-focus. It's easy if we get self-focused to ignore all that God gives us and all that others do for us, and it shows itself in two ways. For some people, It ends up, we come up somehow with this idea, so here's all I'm supposed to do, and it's all up to me. And we place the weight of all of this on our own shoulders. I have to do this. That's one way. And then the second is to ignore all that God has done and others have done and say, I did this on my own. We have to be careful of those dangers. So as we work, and we are to work and and to work hard towards spiritual success we also need prayer it's not an optional thing it's required it's essential for us to pray and to ask God to work in us to change us to give give us desire to want to be like Jesus to grow spiritually and we're going to talk about prayer in just a minute but a couple of other things first one of the downsides of using the term spiritual success, and I kind of put that in quotes, is an idea that we often carry with success. And that idea is of arriving or of achieving. And when we've, when we've arrived, when we've achieved what we were after, we're done. No more effort. Well, as I was, I've already talked about it, spiritual change is, and growth is a lifelong process. That's why I like the word obedience. And you could use it either in addition to or in place of success, spiritual obedience, to explain spiritual success or maybe to replace. And here's the other thing about spiritual obedience. Every day is a new opportunity to obey. Now, we haven't looked at, our, at the later verses in what we read, so let's do that now. And what you see when you read those verses is that working towards spiritual obedience also requires repenting. Isn't that great? Amen. Oh, I, just in case those of you at home, you, you may not have heard the nervous laugh. <laughs> am I supposed to laugh? Am I supposed to groan? What am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to say here? Well, aren't you excited about repenting? No. Okay, I had an honest answer. All right. But we should be. We should be excited about repenting. Now, you don't see the word repent in our verses, but you see in the verses what repentance in involves. Now, here's why we don't aren't excited about repenting. Because repentance often has a negative connotation. I grew up in the church, and I grew up in the church thinking that to repent... Primarily means to feel sorry for my failure. So, a little bit of change and a whole bunch of sorrow. Okay? Martin Luther said the Christian church is a life, I'm sorry, the Christian church, the Christian life is a life of repentance. Well, if you're thinking like I was, that's not very exciting at all. Who wants to live their entire life being depressed about how messed up you are? Nobody. But there's something else, and actually I think it's the bigger, it's it's a substantial part of repentance, and that's the idea of change. If you think about what we've just looked at, we've been looking at these verses where Paul is talking about us moving from immature to mature, from being selfish and self-focused to being like Jesus. Well, that involves change. And verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians 4 give us a picture of that. So let's look. And, use, and, and I would encourage you to start thinking of repentance using these terms. First part is agreeing with God about my fault or my wrong. In the verse, it says, to put off your old corrupt self. So let's use an example. Let's say that we're talking, and I, you and I, and I speak unkindly to you. The Spirit convicts me, Mark, what you just said wasn't kind or helpful. What am I going to do with that? Am I going to agree with God? You're right, that was not a kind thing to say, that was hurtful. Or am I going to defend myself? Typically we're going to do one or the other. Am I going to agree with God about what I did, that it was, was wrong? Second is renewing my way of thinking. How are we going to do that? With the Bible getting God's perspective on what he says what is good what is not good so we i renew my way of thinking so for example in just in the verses we looked at related to me speaking harshly to you the spirit might remind me mark you're supposed to speak the truth in love you're not supposed to you know bald bald truth no love for the other person speak the truth in love and then thirdly seek to realign my life with God's ways, that is, put on the new self. Now, why do you and I need repentance? Well, not only are we human and therefore limited, but we're born broken. I like that word broken. The Bible says we're sinful. We're born loving ourselves more than we love anybody else. We're born loving God's gifts more than we love God. We're born worshiping—that is, putting first in our lives, people and things other than God. So we need to repent. We need to change every time God makes us aware of where we need to change. And so that change is part of the putting off, the recognizing, agreeing with God. This is what I'm—I'm doing what I shouldn't be, what I need to change, or I'm not doing something I should. This is what God says. And then this is how I need to realign my life and do that. Well, you and I cannot just grit our teeth and realign our lives with God's ways on our own effort. We can't do it. We need to pray and ask God, not only that he would work this, but again, another summary that I really like. Ask God that God would rescue us from ourselves. So let me say that again just she didn't get all the, uh, the, the words there ask God that he would rescue you from you I should ask God that he would rescue me from me and we just saw why why we need to be rescued from ourselves okay? because of how we live but also because you are one of the most influential people in your life because no one speaks to you more than you do now If you're talking to yourself out loud all the time and arguing with yourself, people think you're crazy. Most of us don't talk to ourselves out loud all the time unless we're alone. But even if we're not talking out loud, we are still talking. And here's the thing, often we are not even thinking about what we're telling ourselves, not even thinking. And so if we're not even thinking about it and we're surrounded with all these messages and ideas, many of which now are contrary to god's ways often we're telling ourselves things that are not true don't that don't line up with god's word we need to be aware of that now add to that what i've already talked about our hearts naturally turn away from god our hearts naturally twist god's truth so no wonder we need to be rescued and we need to change So, so far, we've seen this picture in Ephesians 4 of spiritual success or obedience that includes loving God and loving others, growing and maturing, giving and receiving, learning God's ways. We've seen the need for repenting and that it's a good thing. And now we look and see where the prayer fits in. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you read Ephesians, Paul actually gives the prayer before he talks about, gives us that list of descriptors it's in the end of Ephesians 3 that Paul has a prayer that's related to what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. So let's look at that prayer. It's Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. Please follow along as I read. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory we may grant, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So notice Paul is asking God to do this work in the lives of Christians. So let's look in a little more detail what he's asking God to do. He begins in saying, and is praying that you and I would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in your inner being. When God spiritually adopts a person and, into his family and makes them a Christian, God puts his Spirit in that person. And Christians need the Spirit of God to be working in them because they still have the self-centered sinful flesh in them. And Galatians talks about the fact that the two fight against each other. We also know we won't be rid of the flesh until our physical bodies die. And so we need to be strengthened spiritually so that we'll listen to God, so that we will regularly read the Bible, that we can serve others and love God and more. Then he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The Christian life is a life of relationship with God and with others. And the more you and I involve Jesus in our daily lives, the more that we depend on him, the more we see how much he loves us and the more opportunity he has to grow us and to make us like him. Then he prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Now let me just pause here and show you the connection between this prayer and the descriptions we just looked at. In, in and here he's, he prays that we'd be rooted and grounded. In Ephesians 4, he talks about the fact that we should not be tossed to and fro. In Ephesians 3, he prays that we would be strengthened. In Ephesians 4, he talks about the work of ministry and service that needs strength. In Ephesians 3, he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And in Ephesians 4, he talks about us growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. He's praying about what he's about to describe, the life that we're called to live. And then he prays that we would know the love of Christ. Here the word know is talking about personal experience, personally experiencing and recognizing the love of Christ. But part of the problem is we don't always recognize the love of Christ for what it is. So let me give you a few examples. Every time you and I rebel against God, and let's take that example that I had of me speaking harshly to you. I speak harshly. The Spirit of God prompts me that that was wrong and I need to repent, I need to ask for forgiveness. And I ask for forgiveness and I realize I'm immediately forgiven. All of that is an example of the love of Jesus. Every good gift of every kind that you and I receive is an example of the love of Jesus every time you and I are loved by someone else that's a reflection of the love of Jesus every time you and I are comforted by somebody else that's a reflection of the love of Jesus every time God answers our prayers even if the answer is yes and or no we see the love of Jesus And if you notice in the verses how he describes the love of Jesus he says you can't find the limits you can't find the end of it can't get your arms around it and that's one of the reasons why I'm now looking forward to going to heaven I can tell you that raised in the church and the things I heard about oh I'm you're gonna get a harp you have your you know and you're gonna sit on the cloud and strum and play your stuff well I'm not all that great at singing so I didn't, wasn't really that looking forward to it. Seeing this, I'm a whole lot more excited because I realize even with eternity, I'm never going to reach the limits of God's love. I'm never going to be bored and sitting around with nothing to do. There is no limit to his love. And then he finishes praying that we'd be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a prayer that Christians will look more and more like Jesus, and it immediately took me to Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is where we become like Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this prayer points us to what we looked at in Ephesians 4. This prayer is a prayer that you and I can pray every day for ourselves and for others. If you think about it, this prayer highlights our dependence on God. This prayer also gives us insight into what God is doing in our lives, and this prayer applies to all of life. This prayer shows us what God says is important and how he wants us to live because, as I said, it points us to Ephesians 4, where we get this description of the Christian life that he wants us to live. And it involves all that you're doing in your family, at school, at work, at church, with your neighbors. It covers everything that you and I do. And if you notice, too, we're to strive, yes, we're to strive for spiritual obedience and spiritual success, but God is the one who gets the glory. Not only because he's the one who made us, we see here so clearly God is the one who gives, God is the one who grows us, God is the one who works in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us and loving us first. We thank you for giving us this picture of the Christian life and a prayer related to it where we can see how we can and should pray for ourselves and for others to grow spiritually, to mature, to serve, to give, and then also to see how much we receive from others and from you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond with a song.